0: Welcome to the Empirical Cycling Podcast. I'm your host, Coley Moore, and thank you, everybody, for listening. As always, please subscribe to the podcast. Obviously, wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you have not already, that's, uh, that's cool. Just share the podcast because that helps us a lot. Thank you so much, everybody, for sharing the podcast. Also, thanks for all the five-star iTunes ratings. We have a ton. That is really helpful. We appreciate that. And of course, we're ad-free, so if you want to donate to the show, you can do so at empiricalcycling.com slash donate. And um, that reminds me, because uh, up in the Instagram stories, I do some weekend AMAs. That's at Empirical Cycling, of course. And uh, this weekend, somebody joked uh, or asked about Eastim, and I joked that you should give the money to me uh, instead and sleep well, knowing that I'll spend it on tacos and whatnot. And uh, a bunch of people actually did. So thank you so much for that. We really appreciate your donations. Um, so if you have any, uh, coaching consultation inquiries, you can also support the show by becoming an empirical cycling client. Uh, and of course you can do so reaching out to me at empirical at gmail.com. And we do have uh, coaches taking on athletes at all times, all uh, ability levels, all, uh, disciplines, et cetera, et cetera. Consultations. We will check over your training and we will of course try to give you the tools to make your own training plan or, uh, you know, whatever you kind of want there. Uh, so thanks everybody for all the cool consults that we've had a chance to do in the last couple of weeks too. Those have been really fantastic. So thanks. Um also, one more plug. Uh, this is not really an ad because I'm not making any money off it, but uh, Water Bottle, W-A-T-R-B-O-D-L, uh, reached out and said, do you want to do a collab? I said, I don't know. what." Uh, sure, I didn't know what that was. Um, but uh, it's uh, 10% off your full order. Uh, use discount code depends, all one word. Uh, I, I believe all in caps. That's how it was given to me. So <laughs> um, I just think their stuff is really cool. So uh, I do have one of their Carbohydrates shirts in the style of the Campagnolo logo go And uh, I absolutely love it. So, um, thanks, Water Bottle. And so, um, all right. So, what are we doing today? We are talking to Empirical Cycling Coach Katie Amon. And um, Katie is somebody who has had some experience with overtraining in the past, uh, both in swimming and in cycling. So, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about her experiences with that, and uh, you know, uh, some tips and tricks to uh, to recognize and potentially avoid it and a lot of it of course comes down to the basics as you might expect and what kind of basics well you're going to have to keep listening so and of course we answer your questions um, on Instagram at Empirical Cycling Instagram I ask in the stories before we record podcasts uh, sometimes with like an hour notice and sometimes with a day's notice I will ask for questions on the topic and we will answer them so we also get to your questions at the end so uh, that is the way to get your questions uh, onto the podcast uh, if you have any. So let's get right into our interview with uh, empirical cycling coach, uh, Katie Amen. Thank you, Katie, for coming out to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, um, one of the big reasons I wanted to have you on is because, um, you know, unfortunately we're going to start with a downer because uh, <laughs> you have been overtrained a couple times in your life and that's a, a spot where not a lot of people really should be um, in your opinion or ever, <laughs> should, dare we say ever?
1: Yeah, probably ever.
0: Um. And so I think it's good to recognize, you know, kind of talk about your experience with it and, um, you know, talk about the signs of overtraining and uh, ways that, uh, you know, you came out of the overtraining. Um, And also, you know, we can talk about motivation and sport differences uh, because you come from a swimming background. Um, And so tell me about swimming training because Kyle has told me many times, even him as a sprinter, the volume of swimming training he was doing, which always sounds crazy to me.
1: Um, Well, now looking back, it does seem like a bit of a psychotic sport. And even my cycling friends (laughs) thought that I was a complete masochist coming from swimming because you train almost every day. And usually, you know, we didn't have training on Sundays, but we would have meets instead. So we would have meets on Saturdays and Sundays. And Uh, My parents were actually runners, so it also stunned them that the meets would last from basically dawn till dusk. And you would do a lot of different events all compressed into one day, Um, whereas typically in track you only run one event. So even at the higher level meets, you would have to swim races in the morning nap and then come back and swim races at night. So the level of preparation was extremely high.
0: Yeah. Well, that that almost sounds like track racing where you race a couple times a day. Um, but I just heard a clip from a podcast about somebody going, uh, an, I think it was an Aussie, doing the Olympics. And he said his CTL was like 80 going into the Olympics. Um, but he said that also wasn't very different from any other track thing. And so a CTL of 80 means you're probably training about, on average for the last 42 days, about 20 12-ish hours, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. So uh, were you training on average 12 hours a week?
1: (laughs) Unfortunately, no. Even in high school, I would say I was training 15 to 20 hours, mostly in the pool, some dry land, which is also strength. It's just a different term for it. Mm -hmm. Um, But most of it were sessions done in the pool and including doubles, which means you would come to the pool in the morning at 4.30 or 5 a.m., and then come back in the evening for another hard session.
0: Did you even have a chance to eat breakfast most of those days? At I barely,
1: 4 I barely had time to actually sleep. Unfortunately.
0: <laughs> Wait. So, about how much were you sleeping a night on average?
1: Probably, honestly, four to five hours because I had so much high school homework. Doing, I'm very serious about my academics, so I would be doing calculus homework until 1 a.m. and then have to get up at. 5 a.m. for training.
0: Yeah, so is is this actual hero stuff that you would recommend to anybody?
1: <laughs> no, definitely not. And I think my coaches were just doing the best with the science and expertise they had. There was more technique fo focus at my club, which isn't really common in swimming. A lot of times technique
0: is a lot easier and low, lower, lower yes. training load.
1: Yeah. A lot of, um, clubs just hammer volume all the time. At least we did have rotation of skills that we were doing where we'd practice starts and things like that, which are important in swimming.
0: Yeah. But, and, and the swimming strokes are also very technique based, right? Like your, a lot of your speed is based on the technique in the water. And so, yeah. so that makes a lot of sense, but like, you know, like Kyle, um, well, he's not here, but he would Say that you know he was just doing just doing thousands of meters and just meters upon meters. Yeah. I'm sure you know you knew people like that. So what years yeah. were was this happening? Like what years were you in high school for this?
1: So I mean I think all of my high school career we were doing this crazy volume, and I remember I would also swim on the high school team, and we would do a high school meet on Friday evenings. But then our coach for our club team wanted us to come to the pool by 6 a.m. on Saturdays to do a really hard session. And even when we told her we had high school meets, she was still like, no, it's very important that you get in this like difficult session, which to me made – not that much sense because we were sleeping on maybe five to seven hours after a meet. And even if the meets were a bit of a joke because the high school <laughs> level, you know, wasn't very good,
0: you're still there for many hours. You're elves. still training like it's, it, it, you know, people training for the Olympics don't train this much, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think swimming because it's non-impact, you, they think you can just like hammer the volume and like cycling, yeah, mm-hmm, all the time. And I just, I think it's very stuck in the 70s because there's nothing that it equates to power in swimming as a metric. Yeah. And so everyone just thinks that it's only volume all the time.
0: Right. And uh, I think you and I, in a previous conversation about this, you had mentioned that the you know, the coaches had kind of a meathead mentality about this. Like the more work you put in, mm-hmm. the faster you will be on the other side. And you actually, in high school, is like saw examples of where that's not true with some of your yeah. uh, teammates.
1: Well, one of my teammates was a classic sprinter, you know, and she was kind of like lazy, but she had really, really good technique and she could always beat me in sprints. And it killed me because I was doing these crazy sessions. She just like, you know, wouldn't show up to practices.
0: <laughs> Probably and better for a sprinter. <laughs> just, you
1: know, destroy everyone. And my coach refused to do sprint training with us because the mentality was like, you're going to be, um, a distance swimmer or a 400 IM swimmer, which means all four strokes. Like you're going to be doing the hardest event there is. You mean you personally? Oh, the whole team. The whole team. Yeah. Oh. So the philosophy was we're going to be a 400 IM team because it's the hardest event out there. So we're going to train the hardest we can, even if you are a sprinter, which really does, doesn't make sense to me, but it was just this, as you were saying, macho mentality.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And as a, as a lazy sprinter myself, um, I'm, I'm personally offended by your coach's mentality there, you know? Um, and so also, you know, the years that you were doing this, uh, those were also the years of, uh, the rise of CrossFit too, right? And I think you had mentioned you had some, some experience with the CrossFit stuff and that's Mm -hmm. really where you started to kind of go like, you know, as if being a, you know, a 16, 17, 18 year old high schooler, um, you know, on four or five hours of sleep, you know, you're actually maintaining the training load, not like completely going off the edge. But I think when we talked last about this, um, the CrossFit was really what pushed you past the edge, right?
1: Yeah. I feel like the CrossFit is a double-edged sword because one of my coaches was also a very good college collegiate swimmer. And also a very good strength coach who did CrossFit, and he taught me a lot of the fundamental lifts that helped me in college have a leg up on everyone else lifting. My technique is so much better than most you know, average athletes who go to, into the gym, especially swimmers. But at the same time, we would... I did some group CrossFit and some other, you know, just CrossFit type workouts and I don't think those were super conducive to performing well and I was even told that I needed to do this thing called like the Fran or something. It's it's one of those crazy CrossFit things where you do like 200 push-ups and, you know, 100 pull-ups or something and I downright refused because I was 16 or 17 and I just felt that um, even with a meet coming up that wasn't my focus, it was still not going to go at all well coming off of a really hard strength training into a three-day meet.
0: Uh, I would agree with you there. (laughs) Um, so well, how did your coach take that?
1: Um, she was very angry because she wanted me to, you know, follow this plan and thought it was good for me to become, you know, mentally tougher, but I just had to shut it down because I knew it really wouldn't work for me.
0: Um, all right, well, so here's an aspect of, uh, of all this that we've never talked about before, which is um, what are your feelings on how that does or does not impact mental toughness? And also, do you think it's appropriate for high schoolers?
1: Well, it's so interesting because at the time I was so into, you know, just swimming and my mom was pushing me to try other sports.
0: And your, and your mother also, uh, we should note, was a really fantastic runner uh, back in her high school college days like she was a mm-hmm. she was a nike runner.
1: Yeah, and she ran for Dartmouth and you know, she had the 10k record for a really long time and she was pushing me to just do other sports, but I was very focused. I was on this one, you know, single track mindset. And so I thought that just by working harder every day, never traveling to see my family, like always just going to these workouts and never missing them, like and even missing like my friend's my best friend's birthday party one night, like I thought that was heroic. Um, and now looking back on it, I'm, I'm actually kind of bitter about that because I feel like I missed out on a lot of experiences and that my coach was saying, Oh, you're going to make, you know, this junior national t- cut time. Like you just need to train more hours. I never made that cut time. And I look back on that thinking, Oh, what if I had you know done all these other things? Yeah, If you had
0: taken a night off and gone to a birthday party and had some cake, you probably would have made it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I also remember out of me, I swam a minute slower in my, A 1,000-yard freestyle, which is an event. How long is
0: the event normally so we can get a sense of how long a minute is relative to it?
1: 10 or 11 minutes. You
0: added a minute to Wow. (laughs) Very bad.
1: But it's because I went skiing the day before and didn't tell my coach. (laughs) But I didn't really regret adding a minute at this meet I didn't care about. And I wish I took a few more of those opportunities.
0: (laughs) Um. All right. So, uh, so how did you kind of recognize, you know, even back then the overtraining stuff and also, uh, talk about your motivation too. Cause when you went to college, you went to Middlebury, which has a great cycling team, which you helped, uh, really make blossom into kind of what it is now, uh, even through COVID years. Um, but you know, you went there and, um, yeah, tell me about, um, how swimming went there and like kind of how that got you into cycling.
1: So it went really well my freshman year. I actually made the NESCAC team, so they only picked 24 um, women on the team to go, and I so made So what's,
0: what's NESCAC?
1: Um, it's the championship meet between all of the um, Division three schools sort of in the area.
0: Mm-hmm. So like a New England like like, yeah. like high-powered swimming meet yeah. for D3. Mm-hmm. Cool.
1: And I got into the – for the 400 IM, I actually got some personal lifetime bests, which for some – college swimmers really doesn't happen. And I made the, I think the B final and scored points for the team in two or three of my events, which was a big deal. Um, But coming off of that, I felt kind of depressed because I was no longer swimming year round. College swimming only goes from like November to February. So I was on this listserv for the cycling team that I you know, put my name down in the fall of thinking I would never go to one of these meetings. It's just that one of my mom knew one of the kids who was running the club, <laughs> uh so I put my name down you know just politely. And I got an email from them saying, you know, here's this home-cooked meal. So I just wandered in one day, <laughs> one night to this dinner. I'm like, okay, I really, you know, I've only ridden a bike in a triathlon. Like, I'm not very good at this, but might as well see what it's all about. And my friend Will, who was also on the diving team, swimming diving team, was there. And I'm like mortified because I'm not actually a cyclist (laughs) at this dinner, but they were all so nice. They were explaining the sport and everything. And I walked away thinking, yeah, that's something I really want to try.
0: And so how did you, um, so how did you go from deciding to, uh, you know, go get free food to quitting the swim team?
1: So it's interesting because what happened was I bought myself a used bike that my mom found in the upper valley, so which remember is
0: what like make and model it was.
1: Yeah. It was a specialized, um, Dolce frame, uh, aluminum frame road bike. It's probably like under a thousand dollars. It was used. Well, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I bought it off a woman in my hometown in like Hanover and my mom for my birthday, it was like in March, she bought me a cycling pump and a helmet and stuff. And I, I took it back to Middlebury. Well, I I rode it once at home for 11 miles and thought, oh my goodness, 11 miles. This is so long. (laughs) Took it back to Middlebury on some dirt roads. Um, got really lost and got really nervous because I didn't think you were supposed to ride road bikes on gravel. So I like got home and I was crying in my dorm. Like, oh, you're not supposed to ride road bikes (laughs) on gravel. But you know, my friends assured me now it's, it's totally fine. And now you do that (laughs) regularly. (laughs) Yes. It's the Vermont way. Um, and so then the following weekend, there was a race at Dartmouth, um, right in Hanover, where I live. And I thought, oh, this is a great opportunity just to like see my dad, you know, yeah. <laughs> and go back home and just hang out. Uh, and I was walking around, and my friend Kai Wiggins, who was the president, he was just telling me all about cycling. And I hopped in that crit and I got like second or something. And the women's intro and then the next day there was the uvm road race and i ended up winning it i remember them telling me you know don't go off the front that's like a really dumb move like you're <laughs> using too much energy but i did and then i ended up getting caught but it was a climb finish so i ended up edging everyone out in the in the final um so i just absolutely loved it i got like really into the e triple c um cycling scene at collegiate and then i raced a bit in the summer you know got a cyclocross bike and then raced a tiny bit in the fall, um, my sophomore year. And then I was still swimming my sophomore year, but I was just really, really miserable.
0: Yeah. So, um, so was it that misery that made you go, I'm just going to be a cyclist now, despite the fact that I'm actually going pretty well in swimming.
1: Yeah. I mean, my sophomore year was terrible in the pool. Like it was so bad. I didn't even make the championship team. I just, every single day came to practice really, really depressed. Whereas freshman year, like I was told I was one of the only people who seemed to genuinely like the sport.
0: Wait, so how did you, where did that 180 come from?
1: It was really, I think that I just loved cycling and I loved being outside. And so I was now really attached to this new sport and I didn't like, love swimming anymore.
0: And going back to the pool was just like, and there's no sunlight, it's depressing. Yes. <laughs> you can't stop for cookies. <laughs>
1: thankfully, the Middlebury pool has these gorgeous windows, but even that really couldn't save me when I could, you know, see this beautiful fall weather. And yet I knew I couldn't get on my bike because I was doing these workouts in the pool. And it all felt just really, like, pointless to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, well, and so... Um, And so how was your cycling training initially different than your uh, swimming training? Um, Because I imagine that, uh, you know, being able to sleep in and sleep, you know, more than eight hours was just certainly a help. I imagine being able to wake up and have breakfast instead of running to the pool was a help. yes. Um, So take me through that a little bit.
1: It's so funny because the reason I loved it was that I didn't train. Like my training was just going out and doing hard shit on the bike, which is, you know, it seems kinda of dumb, but it's what I needed at the time because I was so sick of, you know, ten plus years of intervals in the pool. I couldn't think about doing one more interval on a bike. That just sounded like misery. So I found this friend, um, Whitney, and she kept texting me to go out for rides. And she absolutely was thrashing me. I didn't even know you were supposed to eat on the bicycle. So she's like, you know, taking out these cookies and waffles and eating. And I'm just clearly bonking. I didn't know the term at the time. Uh, And she's dragging me all around Vermont. I'm like, I thought I was I thought I was a good athlete, but this really <laughs> puts it into perspective.
0: Wait, you would never. How long were your swim workouts and you never ate during them?
1: Um, about two hours, maybe three at the longest.
0: Three hours, no food?
1: Um, with the three hours, I would bring maybe a little bit of food, like a sports drink, but honestly, only for the meats, I would take cliff um, shot blocks, but otherwise, not a huge um, component of fueling for swimming.
0: And so. Um, Excuse me. So the uh, so the cycling was really nice in that like you just kind of got some time to just do whatever.
1: Yeah, I got to do some really like cool challenges. Like I was told by some of the senior men in the cycling team that these gaps around Vermont were super iconic to ride, but they're really difficult. And they almost said it as if like, hmm, you probably couldn't get up one of those.
0: So, so it was a challenge. I was extremely <laughs>
1: determined to prove them wrong. And so poor Whitney, my new friend quickly became my partner in crime for going up these giant gap climbs.
0: What was your favorite Middlebury? Cause you were right there.
1: Yeah, probably Middlebury, but I honestly loved Appgap because the view at the top of it is just so stunning.
0: That's true, it is, especially like in the summer and the fall. I've to, actually, I haven't gone up in the fall and seen the foliage, although I bet it's still your shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with leafers up there. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so why don't we talk a little bit about uh, your cycling training then? Because um, now we're past the swimming overtraining, and now you are riding, and you are enjoying it, and you are sleeping and eating and eating on the bike, finally. Um, so uh, so what was the next step in cycling for you? Like what made you get really serious about it? And how did uh, kind of, let's build into how that went wrong.
1: So my junior year, my junior fall, I actually quit swimming. That's when I realized I was miserable. But in this process, I bef- before um, quitting, I was also mountain biking. My friend Fareed and Anika talked me into this. Love Fareed. Idea. Best guy ever. Um, and well, Freed, if
0: you're listening, uh, I hope you're doing well.
1: And Freed convinced me that, you know, you should come to all these mountain bike races with me. So me, Freed and Annika were like the Middlebury trio. And then I had this brilliant idea in my head, which was, oh my goodness, we could go to collegiate nationals. That sounds really cool. So we actually went out to Montana and competed in collegiate nationals. And then I started, um, right after that, I came home and was competing in cross and I quit swimming. And I was actually winning some cross races. And I, you know, did my four to three upgrade. And I thought, hmm, you know, this is really fun. Road racing is coming up in the spring. And I would also like to go to collegiate nationals now that I'll be an A. So I asked my mom for some tips and help with a little bit more structured workouts. And I did that. And I didn't finish last at collegiate <laughs> road nationals my junior year, but it was pretty darn close. And then that summer, I kind of realized, you know, I'm just cat three pack fodder in on road. You Got like, your game. I I need to do something about this, or else this is gonna be the rest of my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people are feeling pretty called out right now. <laughs>
1: I was seriously like, you know, 13th out of like 26, like it was just perfectly middle of the pack. I couldn't do anything except for like sit around and I just had no idea why I wasn't really getting better, but I also wasn't training. So I knew maybe in the back of my mind that training could help a bit.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so you reached out, you got a coach. Um, and so you got faster for a little while. And then, um, and then things kind of went sideways. So, tell me about uh, tell me about the getting faster, and tell me about where uh, things started to go wrong a little bit.
1: So, December of my senior year at Middlebury, I hired a, a coach. I didn't even really have a power meter; I had a heart rate monitor. My mom gave me her power meter after making a deal with me to clean out my entire room in exchange for the power meter, which is pretty <laughs> epic, if you ask me. And. I got this power meter, so I started training with power with uh, this coach. And no, I really, really loved this coach. He took me from being cat three pack fodder to winning elite races at the regional level, and you know, having my cat too. But the training, um, a lot of it was just you know, riding more, riding more consistently. I was doing a lot of trainer work my senior year at Middlebury. Um, in in the basement of my dorm with like friends, if I could convince them to train. And then also just a lot of different interval types. I'd say it skewed probably towards tempo and sweet spot. I did a lot of two by 20 at tempo, um, which in retrospect, I'm not really sure what that was doing, but it did help for a while. And at the same time, I was losing weight but not purposefully. I was just shedding off a lot of the muscle I had from swimming in my upper body. And I was quickly losing weight and didn't know anything about fueling on the bike. So I wasn't eating a ton on the bike, maybe like a little bit, like a bar or two. Um, but I I really had no concept of fueling for performance.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and so... What do you think was the reason that you were losing weight? Was it the intensity? You were just like, just kind of like, oh, I'm nauseous. I I went so hard today. I just can't eat. Um, You know, was it uh, situational? Um, Also, uh, wait, was was that 2020?
1: That was 2019.
0: 2019, yeah.
1: It was, I think, a combination. A lot of it was ignorance and just not knowing. Part of it was, oh, this is kind of cool. Now I'm going, you know, going to be faster. And yeah, another thing was just thinking, oh, you know, I don't like gels, so too bad. I just, I'm not, I can't find nutrition that works for me. I'll just try and get down what I can, but otherwise I'm just going to have to deal with eating less.
0: So it was a combination of, uh, poor nutrition. Um, also we had talked about your diet at the time, which was very low in protein, Mm -hmm. um, and also uh, super high intensity. So, um, you know, I think we can start to unpack a little bit of like, you know, the, uh, all of the things that point to overtraining here. Cause I think some people listening, hopefully not too many, uh, but I think some people listening are thinking high intensity, not eating well, losing a lot of weight, not on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, am I overtraining? The answer could very well be uh, maybe. Um, so,
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And I, I just really want to underline that I was not on any crazy diet you know, trying to lose a bunch of weight. Like it was not on purpose. I wasn't stepping on the scale every day thinking, okay, yay, you know, I, I'm losing this weight. I just thought it was kind of normal that I was dropping the weight. And another big sign for me was that um I was constantly getting injured. And both my mom and I are pretty prone to injury. Um, I don't know if that's just, you know, a genetic thing or just, you know, how I'm built but it seemed like I was constantly getting injured. And even I, on the bike, because it's, it's bike.
0: rare to get injuries on the bike unless you've got a really bad fit from like overuse stuff.
1: And I had a very good fit from FitWorks. So it wasn't even that I had eliminated that. And I was getting issues, especially with my Achilles tendon. Um, it was just really crazy, the type of stuff that I was getting. And I thought it was normal. I thought it was just because, oh, you know, I'm, I'm injury sensitive. And I actually think that was in part due to the intensity and the lack of nutrition, especially on the bike nutrition.
0: Yeah. So let's um, let's make a timeline for the weight loss, too, to put this in context. Like, so uh, 2019, when, when were you at your heaviest and how long did it take you to get to your lightest?
1: Well, I want to say after the swim season, um, at one point I was like 138 pounds or something my sophomore year or like sophomore junior year and then my senior year I'd say maybe just naturally shed off a few pounds so I probably started around 132ish and that's the tail end of 2018 and by the summer of 2019 I was around 118 to 119
0: mm mm-hmm. cuz um you know, and we'll have Namrata on the podcast at some point to talk about this kind of thing specifically in the in the do's and don'ts and um, and that kind of stuff. But I think um, you know, you also had some other symptoms besides the injuries. Um,
1: uh, yeah, and well, one of the things is that actually my pediatrician at the time I had seen her for a wellness checkup was concerned about me losing that much weight, and I was just thinking, yeah, I'm just losing off the weight I had for swimming, where I was you know built. Uh, in my upper body, it's not this huge deal, but she was a bit concerned. And I'm like, kind of just waved it off a bit. Um, and another thing was like, I just constantly had this fatigue, but I thought it was normal. I thought that's how you felt when you trained really hard was that you just kind of had this constant level of fatigue. And then I also had lost my period, but I thought that was due to birth control and looking back on it, I'm now really not certain about that.
0: Yeah. Um, so you know, thinking about all this, um, you know, um, you know just just what a shitty thing to go through, really. Um, so wh- where did it really start to go wrong for you with all that kind of stuff, and, wh- and how did you start to come out of it?
1: Well, the craziest thing to me is that I was actually performing super well. So this is not a case of, oh, you know, I the performance was also not good. That's not true. I had an amazing result at U.S. Nationals in the road race. I was winning.
0: I remember that's the first time I, I heard about you was locally. You had beat Becca Farringer um, in a two-woman breakaway. And I saw that and I was like, Wow. <laughs> who's this young woman who's like just who just beat Becca Farringer? Like that's unheard of.
1: Yeah, I beat um back in at Purgatory, which was my first race with the Greenland Velo team. Um and it was funny, I was marshalling that morning too, and I got the opportunity to race. So that was just a huge win for me. It was my first win as a cat 2 i was actually my first race being upgraded as a cat 2 i was also the in the leader's jersey for a bit during the collegiate season i was 7th at collegiate nationals in both the itt and the road race i had also i also won hilltowns the weekend after purgatory which was another big you know classic new england race and then followed that up with um oh 26th at US Nationals in a field of almost 75 um, as my first time. And then it came off of that with a second at Yarmouth to one of Coley's athletes who took the win. And then I wrapped it up with a seventh at, at the overall GC for Green Mountain Stage Race, competing against some actual like pros.
0: I remember that was the year of all the Emma's.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it was. <laughs> like Emma Langley was there, and like it was a field of hitters.
1: Yeah, it Um, was um, very good.
0: And I remember you also, last time we talked about this, uh, you had mentioned that um, you were getting nothing but compliments from like the whole cycling community of like, oh my God, you're looking so thin. This is so great. Uh, Like that kind of stuff, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think people noticed and someone even asked me like, oh, I wish I could get to that weight. Like, how did you do that? And I was like, oh, it was like an accident. You're like, I haven't eaten Mm -hmm." protein
0: in like two months. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like, I don't really even know how I got here. (laughs) And my coach, like, I, every once in a while would ask for nutrition feedback, but he wasn't a nutritionist. And so I think he just didn't really know the extent to what this was, like, how this was a problem for me.
0: Did you have regular contact with him, too?
1: Yeah, he was amazing with communication, too. And I think this is just something that... I mean, the variability and the struggle is so different. Even with my athletes, some people really nail it, and they don't even need much guidance from me. And other people, I really have to ask, like every long workout, how the, how's the nutrition going?
0: Yeah, there are there are definitely some folks who uh, who need the prodding all the time, because um, it's just one of those things. Like um, you just you just sometimes forget. You know, it's like sometimes I forget to put the dishes in the dishwasher. Um, and I'll just go by the sink. and like, Oh God, I forgot to do this thing again. And so I, 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 you know, I kind of understand. Um,
1: I just thought everyone sort of had it dialed. And I was thinking about this today when I had to eat 90 grams an hour for my workout. Like, (laughs) Oh, this is going to be hard for me. It's like, and you don't see that struggle when you're looking at people, you know, on Instagram or social media, it's like, it looks like they have everything so dialed, but then you hear about these world tour pros who are bonking in like, you know, stage four because they forget to eat in the rain. And you realize Oh, actually lots of people struggle with this.
0: Yeah. And the off bike nutrition is a kilogram of cheese or something. <laughs> <laughs> What's his name? I forgot. Mark
1: Padoon. Padoon. Thank you. <laughs>
0: um, okay. So, um, yeah. So where did I want to go from here? Um, so... Uh, the
1: place when it started really going wrong, it w- it's interesting because yeah, get- we had the pandemic in 2020 And that's where I, you know, I was training by TSS, like, every day trying to get a certain amount of TSS, which was, you know, very mentally taxing and just very stressful. So I backed off of that training, told my coach, you know, can we please just train for the long run? Because we don't know how long this pandemic's going to last. We're really going to be in it for the long haul. I did some really good long riding in France when I was there for 10 days. Came back, you know, was just kind of, I mean, I was training, but... I knew I'd be probably in it for the long haul. So I set a different goal, which was to Everest. And I successfully Everested on the west side of App Gap. If you've ever done the Green Mountain Stage Race, race, yeah. Yeah. If you've ever done the Green Mountain Stage Race, you're familiar with that side. I did that 25 times successfully. (laughs) And unfortunately, two weeks after that, um, I was riding with someone and got crashed out. And broke my collarbone in a recovery ride. You never expect it will happen on a recovery <laughs> no. ride. But um, when when the person you're riding with has a worn-out chain uh, and they're sprinting, it's just a very bad combination.
0: What happened to the chain while they were sprinting? <laughs> Did uh, it perhaps fall off and they <laughs> and Yes, they
1: that's what happens. And, you, you know, you get bucked over the bike. And I was just unfortunately uh, collateral damage in this accident. Also went over the bars of my bike, but was my companion was much more fortunate and I was shattered my collarbone.
0: Yeah. Um, and so uh, actually there's one more thing I, I, I think I want to touch on um, with the period where you were losing a lot of weight, which is that uh, looking at your power files from back then, like you were really not getting stronger. Mm-mm. And that's something that I noticed in, in the training. I was looking at it and then you, you had, because you would have like the occasional really good day. Mostly
1: and, during races.
0: Mostly during races, <laughs> and otherwise, it uh, like when we talked about it, it was like it seemed like it was like playing whack-a-mole with the good days, um, which is completely random. Yeah, which is never how you want to how you want to do it. And and you know, one of the first things I told you when you started training with me was I want you to have really consistently good days because I think um, from a runner you would uh, you would um, uh, you follow what's your, what's your Alexi
1: oh, Pappas. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, she says something about like thirty percent of your days. Like a third of your days are going to be bad, a third are going to be fine, and a third are going to be great, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you were like, "Well, a third of my days in the bike are really bad, and that's that's just kind of how it is." And it's like, you know, I think in some way, I think you kind of um, you kind of just expect it to suffer um, mm-hmm. between you know the, the culture around cycling um, that you know your peer group didn't know any better. Um, and you know it's not an expert, you know, a, 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 a area of expertise for your coach, and you also didn't know any better. Um.
1: Yeah, and I think also even with the rule of thirds, this is something I learned way after I was in that period of time, and even the days where you don't feel like so great, I would say those are more meh than like being bad. <laughs> like it should be like meth. Okay, feeling all right, and then feeling really good.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's like I tell people that I'm coaching, it's like if if you feel like riding, but you don't feel like doing the intervals because you're tired mm-hmm. or like you're mentally you're not in, or whatever it is, like you can just ride and that's one of those meh days. Yeah. But you feel fine doing endurance. Yeah, pace. yeah, exactly. But if you start doing hill reps, like then it's a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> um and so you know, and so that you can always turn like a bad day like that into a kind of a meh day. Yeah. Like I wanted to go hard today, I just I just didn't.
1: I also think as um, those days a bit of like, oh, maybe the work stress is just really high. It's yeah. not even that the training's going so badly. It's just, uh, you know, all the mental stress from the work or whatever you're doing.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, so let's get to your collarbone break um, and um, your your uh, recovery, shall we say. Because it, it wasn't really intentional recovery. And I actually uh, wrote a journal article kind of about this, which is that, you know, even if you're injured, you can still recover. Well, it's only part of the journal article, but you can still kind of recover. Like when you get a cold, mm-hmm. like the number of people who have like gotten a cold, taken a couple of days off the bike and they're like, oh my God, I feel amazing. <laughs>
1: <So like laughs> it's really crazy because I actually really relate to watching um, Kate Courtney's 2018 mountain bike season. She got injured in June when all of the, you know, World Cup racing was happening and enough to put her off the bike, you know, but she was still able to train a bit. And then she ended up being world champion in, like, early September, late August. And there's kind of this theory around maybe this low-level injury that forces you to take time off the bike can actually be a really good thing. Like, you know, Leah Davison has talked about this too with her mountain biking. She's gotten injured and come back even stronger from it. And so I do wonder if that, you know, that break time – um, helps people get some recovery they may not have otherwise planned, and yeah. this same that, thing happened to me. Yes, Vanderpool is a really good example.
0: Like, yeah, he he injured his back in the Olympics last year, and and uh, this spring he was coming back, and um, and as soon as I saw that he was like gaining form and going really well, I picked him for every race he started. Um, yeah, <laughs> people were asking me like. Like, who's your pick for this race, Vanderpool? Who's your pick for this race, Vanderpool? And I, I was right sometimes, and I, I looked like I was smart, but a lot of the times I was not right because it's bike racing, and even the best don't win all the time. But um, I was super stoked. I, I, I think I tweeted something like this: like, this is the mm-hmm. freshest we're ever going to see him. Yeah. And you know, and you know, overtraining. I mean, to take this to you know, pros that we watch and our fans of mm-hmm. like. I think it's taken out a lot of people. Like, we're lucky that Tom Dumoulin came back into the yeah. sport. And I think overtraining got Marcel Kittle. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's a really serious problem. And we don't, you know, know it as much. But even Jenny Risbet, she was the 2016 Olympic champion in mountain biking. She came out in 2017 had to completely step away from the sport because she had a really serious eating disorder. And guess what? She won an Olympic medal while going through having an eating disorder and serious depression. So it's just a reminder that people can look totally fine um, externally, but they can be going through all of this um, and taking a step back can actually make them even stronger when they do decide to come back, if they do. And sometimes they don't. And that's a, you know, that's a huge shame.
0: Yeah, but I, you know, obviously, I think if it gets to that point for some people, um, you know, it's just they're doing what's best for them, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's like for you, like you didn't ever think about stepping away from cycling. You were like, mm-hmm. I just want to keep getting faster and faster. And how do I do this? Um, and so when you broke your collarbone, you got a couple months of real serious rest and recovery.
1: Yeah. And I actually gained back 10 to 15 pounds, which. Um, is really healthy during an injury, you know, you need a lot of energy to heal. Um, I even remember I'm I'm a big Remco fan. And when he fell off the bridge, I think during Lombardia, he was actually trying to lose weight while he was coming back um, and had a fractured pelvis. And I cannot think of a worse mix, trying to heal an injury while also losing weight. And it progressed his injury for, you know, an extra three or more months. And so I always keep that in my head as the exact opposite of what, you know, most athletes want to do. Um, And I just let myself gain the weight back. I didn't even think about it.
0: Well, and this this kind of goes back to the podcast that we I uh, did with Fabiano, and I'm trying to have him on again as soon as he's done with some other stuff. Um, but you know, I was like, so what? How should you? We were talking about um, you know illness and, and training and recovery from it, and uh, and I was like, you know, how do you eat? And He was like, just eat a you know good balanced diet. Like, don't, don't try to lose weight. Just kind just, you know, maintain, like, just, you need the energy. You're, you're mm-hmm. and I asked him yeah. how, how much energy, energy does your immune system need? And he was like, a ton. <laughs> <So>. Oh
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure like the bone just needs so much energy to heal. And mine thankfully healed completely properly. And the right,
0: ing- and the right ingredients like protein yeah. and calcium and all sorts mm-hmm.
1: of stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm probably was low on protein then, but I still was just eating whatever I wanted to heal from the injury. and. I also worked pretty extensively with my physical therapist on coming back. Uh, She was definitely pulling the reins and not letting me go back too quickly. (laughs) Same with my surgeon. He had me off the bike for two weeks fully and then trainer for four weeks and then on the mountain bike for a week or two just to make sure, you know, I was all set. And I really appreciate them being more conservative. And, you know, they knew I am a pretty elite athlete yet they still had my full recovery in mind and i saw my surgeon in the grocery store a few months ago he asked me how i'm doing i'm like it is fully healed because they put a plate and screws in it but i don't even feel it so i'm really thankful that i just took the time to recover
0: yeah and so you know that i think that taught you a really valuable lesson in recovery which is that you need to take the time that you need and if you try to fast track it or shortcut it, you are going to actually do yourself more damage than good. And it's going to delay you even further.
1: Mm-hmm. Like you don't want to take one step forward and then two backwards yeah. with what you're doing. Yeah,
0: even though sometimes it seems like, oh, I can, I'm can, i not doing anything. This is a good time to lose weight.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you definitely need all of that energy. And I, like coming back on the bike, I was a lot more hungry for it. And my period started coming back, which was a relief to me. I didn't realize that, that would happen. Um, and I, I realized maybe I was actually p- playing with being a bit underweight before I had broken my collarbone.
0: Yeah. Um, and then once you regained the weight and you started working again, you started working with me too, um, You know, I think. uh, Well, why don't you why don't you describe like the difference in the approaches uh, from previously to uh, you know working with somebody a little more a little more deliberate who has a little. I I don't think I'm an expert in a lot of stuff, but I think I have a little bit of knowledge in the right areas where I can at least push you to like talk to the right person. You know. Yeah.
1: Well, you were super helpful because you showed me how I was riding endurance. At way too high of an intensity, like my old coach had me doing it at at seventy to seventy five percent of my FTP, and it was just too darn which, which hard. Which was how many
0: watts? Because I remember exactly how many watts, you, like it th- actually was. I think
1: it was like one hundred and seventy four. It was a very like specific, yeah. one seventy four. I think
0: right, and um, and when I actually looked at your data, um, I and you know I, I we chatted a bit and we went out for a ride. I think one day. Um, And it turns out your actual endurance pace, like the top of it, was like 130.
1: Yeah, it so was. So you were at
0: 45 watts high on endurance pace. And so what was that like? Just by the way, because oh, I'm th- sure some people out there are doing it.
1: I didn't realize that you're not supposed to like sit in your shower after you go on endurance rides and feel completely <laughs> cracked and just no. eat literally anything in the house. Because clearly, I wasn't eating enough on the bike. Like you should come home and you know want to eat a lot, but like I was like you know, eating every possible thing in the cupboards at that point and just sitting in my shower thinking, oh my God, I'm so sore. And in like the second or third hour of endurance rides, I'm like, I'm not going to make this average power. Like I was always really stressed out about the data, like looking at it like, oh my gosh, I need one more like TSS, like whatever point. And I also had this thought and my mom even told me like, I think you're riding endurance too hard. Like even, um, who is it who Siler even says that, you know, the range is massive. It's like 50 to 75% of threshold power or something. And my threshold power wasn't even set right. So yeah. I was just working off of completely incorrect variables <laughs> and thinking like, why am I so dead? And I think it was contributing to my injury too. Um And then meanwhile, I also could barely do like four minutes, at, it like, repeats at FTP. Like, I barely did any FTP. I never did any VO2 max ever. I wasn't familiar well, with FTP
0: it. because FTP was VO2 max work at that time. Yes,
1: but I really wasn't familiar with true VO2s. I had just been doing so much anaerobic work, like, one minute all out, one minute rest, things like that, and then 2 by 20 tempo. So it was never really working. I mean, I did sweet spot, which is probably actually threshold, but I never did actual, like, long threshold interval training and I never really worked on my volume either. So the aerobic focus was really missing for me.
0: Well, and, and I remember looking at your run into GMSR 2019 and just, just generally being horrified.
1: Yeah. There was a week where I got injured because I was just doing these crazy intense um, intervals. I was sprinting up the backside of Gap for like a minute, 12 times, all out with like four minutes rest. And then you know, doing a three-hour endurance ride done way too hard the next day, and then trying to do like, you know, thirty-second or one-minute intervals a day later, and thinking, "Why am I getting injured?"
0: <laughs> well, I'll tell you why now. Um, okay, so let's let's uh, let's come back to uh, to present now. Um, yeah. So um, so what else? Uh, what else about the shift in training focus uh, kind of surprised you?
1: Well, my my consistency was dog shit, like, before I came to Coley. Like, it was just so all over the place. Like, on my worst day, I would feel like my FTP, I couldn't even get to 200 watts. On my best day, I was flying at, like, 250. Like, it was really crazy. Like, I just, on my worst day, it was going to be just a complete nuclear meltdown. And on my best day, I'd be doing something that be, would just... You'd be the
0: one dropping the bombs. <laughs> yeah, that would make
1: my old coach actually question my power meter, which it wasn't that. It was just the fatigue. And also, I had we had a really hard try- time at first, Coley and I, figuring out what my actual FTP was. Because every day it felt like it was changing because of this consistency issue. And I have some blood flow problem to my legs where I just need a ton of warm-up. Um and my body's very sensitive to like fatigue and, and rest and stuff. And so we, it seemed like sometimes we were almost over resting me and then I would go into a race feeling way too fresh and it wouldn't feel good. And so we kind of had to figure out like, Oh, like when you're fatigued, you feel better, but you, you can't get the full fatigue security blanket, only a corner.
0: <laughs> I did tell you that, didn't I? Yes. <laughs> well, cause I, cause I think you had gotten used to being so overtrained. Um, and um and you know I think if you had you know obviously I think if you had stayed there longer it would have been really really bad for your health in the long term and mm-hmm. for and for you just staying in the sport in general um and so I think you know I'm really glad with where you are now so um so w- let's talk a bit about you know the change in strategy for like your nutrition for instance
1: Well, now I actually eat on the bike and I've actually, so in April of 2021, I just realized I really needed help with nutrition. So I- Well,
0: because you had described to me what you ate for a day and I, I tallied up in my head about 30 to 40 grams of protein.
1: It was very disastrous. And I was like, why am I hungry all the time just eating so many carbs? Like I know in cycling, we all talk about how great it is to eat carbs and- Uh, People don't eat enough carbs, but trust me, that is that was not my problem. My brother, my mom calls my brother the carb king, and I'm probably the carb queen to that. So we're we're (laughs) experts at it. But with protein, um, I haven't been historically so great with that. So I decided I really need some nutrition help. Like I wasn't, I never even looked at the back of most food, um, like ingredients. Like I didn't even know what the macros were. Like, it meant nothing to me. I never looked at calories and never counted anything. And not in the good way of being like, you know, just, oh, let me eat how I'm feeling and this will all work out. It was like, I don't even want to know because I'm scared what this will tell me. (laughs)
0: Um, And so you started working with Namrita.
1: Yeah. And she was able to really demystify things for me. And I, you know, I still work with her because it's so helpful. I still just need every day, the reminder of how much to eat during my rides that really, really helps me. Um, and I also started finding foods I really like, like I realized that scratch makes mix that I really enjoy and they make super fuel, which is a hundred grams of carbs in a bottle which for me is just a blessing when it's so hot or you're doing really hard intervals and you can't stomach as much real food. And then, you know, shout out to Tim Podlogar because Haribo (laughs) is another one of my, you know, big tricks that I love. So you don't have to go like this, this route with nutrition where you're slamming these gels that you hate. Like there's stuff out there that you can use to make it work, which is what I found with, Namrita, you know, she's guided me on just finding other foods and then kind of telling me, oh, here are the macros to, to look for during the day. And I still struggle with protein, but those reminders really, really help me to kind of track a little bit more closely what I'm doing.
0: Yeah. And so let's, let's start to point all this towards how this is leading to not overtraining. So I think, I think we touched on mm-hmm. earlier um, one of the big ones, which would be like, if you're about to have a bad day, you can turn it into a meh day. Yeah. Um, you can so, save it. So not going too hard. So yeah. like saving the hard days. Like like you and I actually just adjusted your training this week. Um, to you know you had a you had a okay day today, but I wanted it to be a really good day. And you were, you said you had some fatigue, and so I was like, all right. So we're gonna keep you. We're gonna adjust the week to uh, to modulate the intensity <laughs> a little bit. We're gonna back it off at just a touch, um, and that's gonna be really good in the long term. So something like that. Um, also, like, what's what's your takeaway for the nutrition stuff?
1: Um, just especially with the racing, it's so important to be on top of it because you can almost never eat enough. Like, I remember last August at Joe Martin just feeling like I need to even do a practice stage race because I just needed to constantly be eating. You're you're just always eating for the next day. It's not that you're even eating for that day. Um, and also another takeaway is that i like it's not even just me. I think that in general people may not get enough protein. So that was something I've learned and also just to look for like variety, find things you do like. You don't have to like shove down, you know, Cliff gels if you really hate the taste of it. Like I thought I was hopeless. I just didn't like anything, but it turns out um there's stuff on the market and you, you can Really play around with your making your own stuff too, but I've been so, lucky so to find stuff. So making food enjoyable, yeah.
0: Um, because I think I think also this is missing from the context here is like currently like you are on a diet, like you are losing mm-hmm. weight, like and you've been pretty consistently losing weight and getting stronger for pro- what about three months now?
1: Yeah, and like you just have to be really careful, and I'm I'm very slow with it, and I'm using Namrita. As my nutritionist to help guide me so that I'm not just doing this all on my own and suddenly losing it unsustainably. Because
0: I think a lot of people, um, where I where I like look at their training history, because if, if they're a new client or if uh, I'm doing a consultation with them, and this comes up, um, you know, because a lot of people will be a little sheepish, but it's like, well, we got <laughs> we got to talk about this, and they're mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, sometimes I try to lose weight. I, I'm not really good at it. I'm not really sure what I'm doing with nutrition, and that's okay. Um, and so we can, you know, can kind of discuss things and you know, also you know, figure out if you're at the point where you need some expert help or if you just need a couple tweaks, et cetera, et cetera. But, but the, the nutrition thing is such a big part of not overtraining because mm-hmm. your body needs so much energy. Like, like you're probably oh, eating more just generally now than, uh, than at some points when you were like losing a lot of weight.
1: Yeah, for sure and also just enjoying the food and and stuff, making sure you make deliberate choices, but it's not like I'm just sitting here eating salad every every day. Like that's <laughs> very far from the truth. Um and I never cut um back on stuff on the bike. I'm always still eating so much on the bike and that's a that's a thing that I've learned is so important. You can't start restricting your carbs on the bike. Um just kind of eating a little bit less off can off the bike can help. And some people actually probably would benefit by gaining a little bit of weight, I think in cycling because you can gain some really good power um when you do gain a bit of weight. And so it's always there's a lot of focus on losing, but I think it's also important to think um, sometimes it's totally healthy to gain. And when I gained, I actually saw my sprint power really go up. And so that can be a sign that, um, you are under eating if you're really losing h- top end, uh, power.
0: Yeah. You gain like 200 Watts in your sprints, yeah. something like that. And like, you know, for women, like, uh, like most women's sprints are under a thousand Watts. And so mm-hmm. you go from like 600 to like 800, you gain like 30% sprint power. That's like somebody like, uh, like a cat for a guy. Just imagine if your sprint is a thousand Watts like now you're going up to like 1300. Yeah. Um, it's a big deal. Yeah, it is a really big deal. Um, and I do train people like that where sometimes, um, you know, the weight's a, a little up and down uh, or if the weight's a little consistently low and, you know, things, uh, you know, there the, there are signs of overtraining that I see. It's like the, the peak power's mm-hmm. down, the, you know, the effective FTP is down too uh, in accordance to yep. what we think. We've got other aerobic metrics that we look at where we think, uh, oh, this is trending down. Uh oh, and mm-hmm. so it looks like overtraining, even though somebody might be saying, "I'm going strong. This is great." Um, and so sometimes, uh, you know, we can spot it before it really becomes an issue. So, um, like, have you had that kind of happen with some of your athletes?
1: Um, yeah, just reminding them because I'll even see it in individual rides, and I just always have an eye on my female athletes because I feel like it's just an external pressure you get more in society as a woman. I know it's not always true, but. Um, I just have an eye out for that because I feel like it can slip through the cracks. And if people make comments about it, too, I will be like, you know, I personally do not care what your weight is as long as you're healthy. But if you want help with this, I'm going to refer you to Namrito or, you know, a a registered dietitian because I do not feel like I'm qualified to help you really lose um, in, you know, in the in-depth way that's going to be best for your health. And, you know, one of – I read Ruth Winder's article. She's very brave for telling her story and her battle with REDS. It
0: was a great article. Her
1: article on, you know – I'll I'll
0: try to link it in the show notes.
1: Yeah, she lost her period and was training at, you know, a really high level in the world tour. And then she won the national championship in 2019, the first year I got to compete at US Pro. (laughs) That was really – just an amazing story for me to read and sort of set some alarms off in my head with my own training and own issues. And I, you know, I've come back to that article and read it multiple times. So I really appreciate her honesty with that. And also just how, how long and deliberate she had to be with coming back and, and leaning on her coach and, and you know, a dietitian and everything, she wasn't doing it on her own. So it's really important to have people in your corner.
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, and so how did your experience with all of this, how does that inform how you deal with your athletes? Just not even just the women, just everybody.
1: Yeah. So if someone wants to lose weight, I'll always remind them just to go really slowly and keep track and let me know and really loop me in on what their process is. And, uh, one and talk
0: of, to a professional, <laughs>
1: yeah, talk to a professional, but one of my guys was losing. And then one day he mysteriously on an FTP workout just kind of crumbled and was like, there's no other factors. Like I slept well, I did everything well, not even too much life stress. Oh, but I, what we, I was doing the dieting thing last week, which he had me clued into. And I said, that's the only factor. So we need to, you need to just eat normally the rest of this week, you know, let yourself eat what you need. And everything came back. But it was one of those signs where it was really good to catch and just be like, okay, this is where we put the brakes on now. Um, So if anyone, I'm just scanning all the time for questions about that. And it it does um, kind of send off a bell in my mind when I see massive drops in power at the end of rides. Uh, and I'm usually on to people. I say, hey, how was your nutrition at the end of this? And they're usually a little sheepishly like, <laughs> well, you know, I didn't have any fuel.
0: <laughs> um, it's funny how, how often do we like get to play crime scene investigators like – like, oh, this person died on this ride. Let's (laughs) let's do a postmortem.
1: Yeah. And it's really great. Like with one of my guys who I did notice that the diet was the factor. He's really good about communicating all the factors that could have gone wrong. And usually he has most of them eliminated so we can kind of pinpoint it. And I have some issues with rest inertia as does he. And so whenever, you know, I always make sure to say, okay, it's a Tuesday, so remember, <laughs> this could be a factor. And then we rule out, you know, all the sleep and stuff. And so it's really nice when people are track- tracking those other factors. So, you know, if someone says, oh, well, I slept three hours, you're like, Mm, probably the sleep and maybe the <laughs> nutrition too. But if someone's like, no, I slept like a good 10, like I'm feeling good except for this one thing, you can be like, all right, now we're going to bore into the into the nutrition question.
0: Yeah. Um. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, and I think that's actually something that you're actually really great at as a coach is, uh, like, your level of communication as a coach is, like, above, like, the level that I would hold anybody to, like, as an empirical cycling coach. Like, you are so excellent. Like, you text your athletes all the time. Mm-hmm. I know this. Uh, I, know, I know Fabiano does as well. And Alex, actually, I'm probably the worst of, <laughs> about it <laughs> from everybody. Um, but, you know, the, that level of communication is so key. I think. And so, um, you know, so I think that's, uh, that's another great reason that you are a really good coach.
1: And one other thing that you actually taught me was that you're finding that you, you can never really rest someone too much. Like not, well, you, not, you, I mean, you, you, you can, can, but you can, yeah. but but you say that, Oh, you get nervous sometimes about get, giving someone a rest day and pulling back. But usually that actually really helps them. So i learned that it's a little bit better to sometimes take the conservative approach because if you have some doubts about whether someone's struggling with fatigue, they probably are. And that day could actually make a big difference.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny because I've I've heard it both ways with some folks because I'm always obviously trying to really individualize everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, I heard from somebody, uh, oh, this athlete of yours says that you uh, you usually put in too much rest. And I'm like, Uh, I don't think I do. (laughs) Some other people are like, uh, yeah, uh, wow, this is a really hard week or, you know, like it goes, it cuts both ways and I'm always trying to adjust. Okay. I've got my notes. Like I know this person needs a little more rest. I know Mm -hmm. this person needs a little more training before a race or something like that. So it's, it's, it's hard to. Make the balance.
1: Yeah, and sometimes some of that comes down to what works better for people's taper. Like I actually kind of like doing threshold going into races, like a bunch of threshold. So I'm one of those people who doesn't want to do like
0: threshold. You like to thrash your legs. <laughs> yeah, like, I do. You have a you have the best race. Like your best race last year was the Joe Martin Crit.
1: Yeah, I like to is thrash after my three legs. Three
0: hard days in like 90 degree humidity.
1: Yes, I like a, a few hard days to open the legs up.
0: <laughs> Three days of so hard racing to open up. For the crit.
1: <laughs> same happened to me at Green Mountain Stage Race too. I do really well with some hard racing beforehand, so it's just something I've been learning. I'm not, and and it was true even for me in swimming. So knowing your own self is really good, but I also think there's a caveat to that with rest. It's like I don't like specifically, I don't like a ton of rest going into a big race. But I like, I love rest in general.
0: Yeah. Like <laughs>
1: like I get fatigued pretty easily. Like yeah. I want the rest normally.
0: Yeah. But, you know, I think with you, one of the solutions is to, instead of uh, thinking um, you need another training day, mm-hmm. like, yeah, you can do a training day, but it's not going to be like a training training day. Like you're not going to go hard. It's going to be an endurance ride. Or you're going to go out on your mountain bike and have fun yeah. and you're going to be riding, but it's it's going to be like you, you're riding right. and you need the riding to, you know, either gain or maintain fitness, mm-hmm. but it's not like full bore intensity. And I think that's probably one of the, one of the biggest differences, uh, if I might say so between your training now and your training previously, is yeah, like the, that, that delta in the intensity.
1: Yeah. And the fun stuff and just having it be a low cognitive load, but also not, you know, super intense while you're doing it.
0: Yeah. And also I think a lot of the ways I assign training rides, it's like impossible to fuck it up. You know, like if I tell you to go out and ride five hours, like I don't care what power you did it at as long as it felt sustainable and you felt still, you know, you're going to be tired at the end, but you should still feel like you've got a couple of really good efforts in you by the time you get home. You shouldn't feel empty.
1: Well, also another really nice thing about that, Coley, is that I got to ride with my mom and I get to ride with my mom a lot more because, you know, she's a good athlete, but I used to feel like I had to do this 170 watt, you know. Um, endurance ride that was not going to work out for like, my like mom. Like some professional athletes we know. Yeah, exactly. And it turns out that, no, my mom is a very strong cyclist and I can ride with her and it's great endurance. She's always worried that I'm going to fly away from her, but it's actually perfect for me.
0: Yeah. And uh, well, I get that question a lot too, which is, um, you know, was this ride too easy? Uh, and I will almost always say no, yeah. <laughs> like, unless you're doing like 50 Watts and then coasting for 10 minutes, uh, <laughs> that's going to be too easy. But honestly, I've seen effective, uh, training rides be as low as like 45% of FTP yeah. for endurance pace and it's still fine. Or, you know, somebody doing like a seven, eight hour day, where they there's like you know probably one to two hours or more of built in like mm-hmm. stops for mechanicals and coffee shops and like yeah. that kind of it's still as effective as if uh, in some ways sometimes that as if that person had done the whole thing just riding
1: right I almost feel like I'm a bit of an anomaly now because I don't like going to the fast group rides and stuff I actually like riding with people who are a bit slower than me because I know it'll guarantee that they. Um, it'll be a better pace for me because everyone around here seems to like to race up the climbs because in Vermont, we have a lot of those. But for me, that's just doing constant efforts over threshold. And, you know, once in a while, that's fun. But unless I have a friend who understands endurance training, I have a couple of them, you know, who are my pace, then it's kind of better to go with someone who's a bit slower. Like my mom, you know, she's not slow. She's a bit slower than me, but it's perfect because um, then it's, it's what I need for longer, longer endurance.
0: Yeah. So, so, uh, so let's get Katie's top three tips for like avoiding overtraining and, uh, or even, and then why don't we do top three tips for like recognizing overtraining? Cause I think we kind of touched on it, but let's, uh, let's make some bullet points here.
1: So I think number one is to like really dial in your nutrition. So
0: mm-hmm. that
1: can really help. Um, number two, it's cliche, but, Listen to your body because I think a lot of people ignore how they're feeling. And if you feel that deep fatigue, which I have felt, you need to really, you know, back Describe off. Describe the
0: deep fatigue because I felt it too because I overtrained myself like in like I don't know 2010 or something like it that. Sounds it sounds
1: kind of weird, but you can almost like feel it in all your muscles and your bones. It sort of settles, and when you go to sleep, you can you feel this like complete exhaustion go over you. Um, And you're just like sleeping so much. I mean, I love sleep too. I sleep a lot, but you can kind of feel it like you're immediately asleep and you can barely get up even in the morning. Like you don't feel rested once you've gone to sleep. And then the bike, you can just feel this fatigue in the back of your mind. Like your legs don't, like everything, the RPE is higher for all of your normal watts. Um, And another really good test for this, like Coley had me do five by five, at around threshold when I was overtrained or coming back and resting. And I, that's how I knew I was still not out of the hole because I wasn't really able to do those successfully.
0: Because it felt way too hard. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, you know, one of the other things that I tell people to do for deep fatigue is I tell them to pay attention to any large motor unit recruitment. So, if you are like accelerating from a stoplight, if you're going upstairs, mm-hmm. uh, if you're like getting up off the couch or from like a low squat or something like that, uh, like if your muscles go oh, no, 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 something yeah. like that, like um that is really deep fatigue. like if if you feel that soreness when you do that, because I remember um uh, last year, um I did some super steep hill reps, and I was yeah. I was not a time I should have done that, but I did. Um, and I think I was, uh, and I was barely aerobically trained at that point and uh, not that I am now, but, um, and I was, you know, grinding a low gear for minutes. Um, and then I was, I was sore for like two and a half weeks after that, like Mm -hmm. not walking around, but like if I accelerated, I could feel it. And that's one of those things where I was like, Oh yeah, that's what this is like. And I knew I should not push it. I like, I avoided the gym. I avoided riding hard. Because I knew that that was a sign that like, that I had really done some damage to myself.
1: Yeah, and I think um, number three that you asked for, too, um, is that...
0: For I avoiding think, overtraining. For avoiding
1: yeah. overtraining, I think less is more. So, like, if you really are struggling and time-trialing for your life on threshold, uh, just stop the intervals for that day. Maybe just complete the volume at a low intensity, but less is more, you know... Two or three interval sets a week is perfect. Doing five or six just because, um, you know, you can is not really a better strategy because I feel like there's we're in a bit of a culture of more is more, like we were talking about with swimming, like heroic efforts. But let your easy days be truly easy and your hard days be really hard. And I think that'll get you so much farther because if you're doing two or three interval days, like really push on the intervals. But on the on the off, go really really easy, and I see easy rides that I'm like, um, you should ride with me because I do 80 watts. <laughs> I really take easy days easy.
0: Yeah, and that's like a third of your threshold. Yes. or Less. Yeah. And so, Just, um, yeah, it's it's one of those things where, uh, and I would add to that, like probably it's a, as like an addendum to one of these points, uh, which is, um, don't be a hero, don't be a meathead, and you know, think, you know, this actually is, yeah, this probably goes along the lines of like the more is more thing of like, Mm -hmm. cause you, you brought up, you know, stress and off bike stress is an additional stressor that your body really just sees the same as a really hard exercise session. but it doesn't know the difference and you're not getting any adaptation because the cadence was zero. And so so it's like, it's like you're doing a hard ride. And then now if you're going to go do a hard ride, like imagine doing like a really hard threshold day or like doing a criterium Then in the evening being like, well, um, now I'm going to do like 70 minutes of threshold work and and it's just not going to happen. And if it is going to happen, it's going to be like pulling teeth. Um, And so, you know, that kind of adds to your point there
1: and i also think even with racing the less is more thing is is really good i actually um really like steve magnus who's a running coach and he wrote something like less is less and that's okay that's a good thing <laughs> so with racing it's like do you really have to go to every you know local race on your uh, tuesday thursday saturday Wednesday, you know, every possible event in existence might not be the best bet for like overtraining or over racing yourself. You can really dig yourself into a fatigue hole. So I always think about that. Like, um, I think people are just scared sometimes to really commit to a race and
0: really well, focus. Well, on and it. also, I think actually, we can say that some people are scared to commit to rest.
1: Yeah. Because yeah, they're scared I of that.
0: Because I think one of the things that you dis—I I distinctly remember you describing to me—because I was like, "Wow, that's crazy." Um, it was when you were like under eating and over training. You said that you know by the end of your rest week, you didn't want to get back to the training because because mm-hmm. at the end of your rest week, you still felt like you needed more rest. But yeah. that after. After like a week, your legs would start to feel open again. Week two would be okay, but by the end, you were dreading week three because you were so fatigued already, and then you couldn't wait for the rest week. And I just remember that, thinking that how much sense that made and also how horrible it is.
1: Yeah, it's like a very bad philosophy, and I think if you really commit to the rest, like that two weeks off in the fall, um, I mean, that's really, really amazing. Um, I think, you know... As I had mentioned with Steve Magnus, he, he even has a Twitter thread on what makes um, the best athletes like really elite. And one of the things is that they can turn it off,
0: and yeah. that's what
1: that's <laughs> what rest off. that's what rest is right. They're using the rest effectively to turn turn that switch off. But then when they're ready to perform, they turn that switch on. Well, and that the- was
0: like well, you were that Nils uh, Vanderpoel article where he was like he was like I'm tired, I'm gonna rest
1: that's so important. Like it, and it sounds so, um, so silly because it's like, so it seems so obvious, but you know, everyone in college always told us to sleep nine hours and not a single soul did that. So <laughs> I think it bears like repeating that maybe instead of going out and like, you know, smashing this group ride or something, like you take that day to be more restful, go easier on the bike. Um, and you can get other things out of life from that too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the more I, you know, it's funny, the more I, dig into the science the more the more even the science says look at the basics focus on the basics um all right so that was what was that three signs of
1: uh, Over- th- oh,
0: three tips to avoid overtraining so mm-hmm. three how about three signs of overtraining because we kind of got to yeah. we kind of did one already which is that deep fatigue
1: yeah um, well one of them is um if you're um, someone who menstruates uh, losing your period is probably that is a big a canary really in the coal mine a sign yeah. um and you know for men it's this deep fatigue can be another sort of
0: yeah thing also that you're um, loss of uh, loss of sex drive yeah, can be a big one too for yeah loss of sex drive
1: for men and um another another one um, would be i think oversleeping is probably a sign so they're getting too much sleep you know you need to constantly nap you're you're sleeping like 12 hours every night you're like falling asleep at your desk <laughs> in class or at work. you can barely pay attention,
0: yeah yeah and and you know and and it could be different for other people too, because I think some folks probably don't have a problem with the sleep maybe it's, it's like, flipped
1: even yeah, yeah, maybe some it's focus people or yeah, some people even have the opposite where they can't sleep at all because yeah, you know they're so wired, yeah, so yeah can be flip flipped on that one um. And just generally, I think like focus, maybe if your focus is all over the place.
0: Yeah. For me, that's a big one is like, like, I can tell that I'm exhausted if my focus is off or if like I had a hard workout, like today I, I rode my mm-hmm. bike for an hour this morning and then I went to the gym a couple hours later, um, which before a podcast, cause I'm actually fairly tired right now, it's probably pretty stupid. So I, I hope I don't yeah. sound too sleepy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Number three is also, um, injury. I would really look out for injury. Uh, cycling's a little harder cause you may not get as injured as I apparently do, which is really annoying for me, but also good because it, a bit, because it's like a canary in the coal mine for me. Mm-hmm. But if you're someone who even does like something like running, that's like a major alarm bell is having stress fractures or just, you know, issues in general, yeah. knees for cycling, it's knees and backs a lot yeah.
0: of times. And, and you know, it's funny cause a lot of that kind of stuff usually goes to a fit, but you know, if you've got a good fit mm-hmm. and you've Can been fine, yeah, and suddenly you're getting injured, yeah, like your your body tissue takes a lot of energy to repair. Yeah. Like, uh, like I'll have Demerita on this uh, mm-hmm. on the podcast or again to talk about injury. this kind of thing. If, well, you, yeah, have if, a, if you have a current
1: injury and it's not getting better,
0: yeah,
1: um, you know, you might still kind of be overdoing it with that. And then just like in general, if you feel like that, I've actually talked to people who have gotten the same Achilles pain that I've had on the bike Mm -hmm. when I was overtraining. That can be another one, like tendon issues. Because tendons can take longer to heal. And so if you're really putting a lot of strain on them and not giving them enough rest, you might be overtraining it.
0: Yeah, and it's ironic too because like tendons have no blood supply. At, like same with cartilage, mm-hmm. and so yeah. you know to get nutrients in and out, you have to be a little active. You have to do something, um, which is you know some of the Keith Barr stuff that he's been yeah. doing with that research is. Uh, Google Keith Barr on any podcast. He's phenomenal to listen to. Uh, so you want to take some, uh, some listener questions from my Instagram? Yeah. All right. Uh, that is at empiricalcycling on Instagram, uh, of course, in case uh, if you came for the memes and you're here for the podcast, thank you for joining. Um, <laughs> if you came for the podcast and you think the memes are cringe, I, well, I apologize. <laughs> um, uh, okay. How about, oh, here's a good one. So what's a sign of overtraining versus just general fatigue or tiredness?
1: I think that's a really great question.
0: Was it chronicness?
1: Yeah, I would say the persistence of it because you really should see fatigue, uh, general fatigue, lift after a couple of days if you give yourself some rest. Yeah, and
0: if you've had a really big period of training and possibly even a good peak, like mm-hmm. you can be exhausted after like one or two really good. Uh, race weekends where you're like seriously peaked.
1: Yeah, and we call that sometimes, what is it, overreaching, which is, you know, a good thing. A yeah, bit.
0: yeah, overreaching, oh, mm-hmm. uh, like functional overreaching yeah. is where you, you know, will get an adaptation and bounce back to stronger than you yeah, were before. for sure. But non functional overreaching is where you go way past that. And, yeah, and you're. Yeah, and then you're screwed. Like, and now you're. You set your yourself back. Yeah. And yeah. I've, I've, I've done that too. It sucks.
1: And also I think another thing about that is you might feel it a bit coming into the end of the block, but then when you have that rest week, you should feel good by the end of that. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, that's a big, big red flag.
0: Uh, well, it's not the biggest red flag. Cause I mean, I mean, a lot of people, uh, will come up, you know, especially after like a hard block of like threshold work or VO twos or mm-hmm. like race racing or something like that. Like, you know, if you need an extra week, take it. That's fine. Well,
1: that's what I you know? mean. It's just a red flag to maybe you need another
0: week. Yeah. Like, yeah. To, you need some more rest. But yeah. it does not say you're overtraining. But, you know, no, the line between sure. overtraining and just being, you know,
1: yeah.
0: tired, is it's fuzzy.
1: Yeah, it's fuzzy.
0: Uh, okay, so could overtraining be identified with blood work before uh, it happens? Uh, my understanding of this, I'm not a doctor or anything like that, but my understanding is that there is no physiologic sign that anyone mm. can find that correlates with overtraining. Um, it's not glycogen depletion. It's not. Um, it's, there's no blood work signs. It's not. It's not anything that you that anybody's looked at yet. There might be yeah. something. There might be something. We've but... not found it. And I've seen a couple of interesting areas of literature mm-hmm. um, where I, I think it shows promise. Yeah. And I'm re- I'm actively reading those papers, and I I have a folder of them that I think are the good ones. Uh, maybe we'll do a podcast on that someday. But um, yeah, really, really nothing uh, other than. You know, Personal signs. And it's funny because I think a lot of people just want to be, at some level, want to be told how they feel. Like, yeah. You, like everybody needs a whoop score now. Yeah. And, but, it's also
1: a little hard <laughs> to go in for a blood work. Like, every, are you going to go in every week? It's yeah, oh, kind no, of
0: if expensive. I, yeah, in my healthcare, if I did <laughs> yeah. that, I would be bankrupt yeah. in a month. Um, uh, <laughs> how do you decide you should sleep in or you're just being a wimp? <laughs>
1: You know what? I am a horrible person to ask this question because I always sleep in because I just love the sleep. So to me, it's not worth the sacrifice. <laughs>
0: All right. So maybe maybe an individual question, but I, I did laugh at that question, so I me had too. to ask it. Um, uh, yeah. So how to eat off the bike from overtraining, focus on a lot of protein intake. Yeah. Protein is definitely a big one, yeah. but also like just, you know, talk to a professional about this yeah. stuff. Make sure you're eating enough. Variety. And a lot of people actually, I would say- who think that they are eating enough have calculated their basal <laughs> metabolic rate off of a um, off of a online calculator, but that still underestimates yeah. your uh, your energy needs mm. because you have non exercise um, uh, energy uh, expenditure when you're walking or yeah. just existing or thinking. Uh, it's called NEAT, non exercise activity thermogenesis.
1: Also, if you notice a food group is really missing and you're not purposefully cutting it out, like you're a vegetarian, yeah. you. Um, That's like probably a red flag if you're like, I never eat like a fruit in my life or like a vegetable. Uh, Yeah, that might be a little bit of a sign.
0: Yeah, you might need some micronutrients in your diet. Um, Fastest way to bounce back from overtraining, there's not a really fast way to do it. And you've, you've done it like twice now. Um, well,
1: unfortunately, I think the fastest way is to not rush it. Like you were saying, like the faster you try and rush the process along, like it can take people – I've read articles on this like a year. It can take people over a year. So if you're seriously overtrained, that's – it can be – you really need professional help to get out of it because it can be a months-long process. But hopefully it takes – it can take you weeks if you're really smart about the way you – yeah. Navigate
0: it. Yeah, and um, and uh, in the last like two years, I've taken on a couple athletes who were who were quite overtrained, mm-hmm. uh, yourself included. And the first thing I tell everybody, if they hadn't already taken time off the bike, is take time yeah. off the bike. Yeah. And sometimes it's the first time they've ever done it. Yeah. And um, it's really,
1: it's insane. it's really
0: a good time to reconnect with your cats. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> uh, key markers in overtraining versus undertraining: tired or just slow. Like we kind of touched on this already, I think. But mm-hmm.
1: um, well. It, I, that's an interesting one because I feel like that gets a bit to the rest inertia. Yeah. So sometimes if you do a full set of openers and you're feeling better by the end, it's actually just that you're a little bit like undercooked. But if you feel like worse by the end of them, that's yeah. a big yeah and it's, it's
0: better to be undercooked and motivated yeah. than overcooked yeah. and just like you want to quit. Yep.
1: Always a little better to be conservative.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, we definitely touched on that. Um, comments. Yeah, we did that. Um, do you think sweet spot almost every day can lead to overtraining? I would say no. But I would
1: say it could.
0: It could. Every day? I would say generally, yeah, every day. If you're fueling it well. I just think that, you know, here's here's my analogy. I for, mean, what's the
1: context? Are you pushing up a hill like for the, a couple minutes well, at sweet spot? Or well, at real? this point
0: um, – I, well, I put out a poll for what should be the 300,000 listens mm-hmm. episode, and it looks like it's, it's leaning towards uh, time crunch training, and this is actually one of yeah. the things that I was thinking about focusing on for that episode, which is... If you don't have much time to train, this is how a lot of people yeah. think about it. Like I'm going to substitute the volume for the intensity because yeah. if, you know if we just think in it's terms not, of like TSS or something like yeah, that. Yeah,
1: but it's not perfect. That's right. The problem. It's
0: not perfect because you can gather 100 TSS by doing an hour <laughs> threshold. Yeah. Or you can do a couple hours of endurance riding, and mm-hmm. they're very different things. Right. And you really, but realistically, if you're talking
1: s- seven days of sweet spot, oof.
0: Yeah. Let's t- let's say six. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. It's not Still not for too long. So. So the question also is like, um, I would say an additional aspect of this question is, can you actually still get faster by doing this every day? And I would say no. Yeah. Because my analogy is that if you go to the gym and you like do like squats, like five by five. Yeah. Very common thing.
1: every day. Yeah.
0: If you do that every day or even like- You you will stagnate. Yeah. You do your five by five and then you like take four hours off and you go back to the gym and you do five by five again. Like you did not recover. Like yeah. the st- and the strength training is actually a really good one because what you it's very binary. You lifted the weight where you did not. Yeah. You know, it's really, really easy. And right. like if you're doing you know, if you're doing like a little bit of sweet spot at like eighty seven percent, but today we added some in at ninety-two plus a couple yeah. surges at ninety-five, like I don't know how to
1: quantify yeah, it's harder that to kind of quantify. stuff. Yeah.
0: And I would say something like that is um
1: so it's an it depends,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's another it depends. Um, how much volume would be considered over training? Do you use time uh or TSS? I, I think that's really good.
1: Time one. is much better to me. I don't really even look at TSS anymore. It causes me complete anxiety and I, I don't think it's that useful, but I think um volume is really individual. Um I would say if you you know, if you've never done anything above twenty hours, twenty is gonna start to feel like Really, an adjustment, and you want to work up to it. But for, I think a lot of people find a limit around 30. And like, if they're really pretty elite, um, I know Bernal, uh, Egan Bernal, like, probably trains the most out of any um, pro. And he was doing around 35 to 38 hours. That's a lot. And I think he, even some of his injuries were potentially caused by that. Cause you're not, really l- not walking the bus.
0: <laughs> that think? too.
1: But um <laughs> really walk though the the injuries before that. I think were it's really walking the line there. So I think even for the most elite people, you really have to look out in that like approaching 30.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and especially because that uh, you know, if you work in a couple of rest days there, like you're, you know, that's like five days of like eight hours yeah. or something like that. Like it's you
1: very- were saying you just can't recover. The recovery time isn't the turnaround is yeah. well isn't-
0: and the the person I've coached who's done the most volume at like thirty to like thirty-four hours or something like that, consistently for a couple weeks, it was fine mm-hmm. until it wasn't and <laughs> yeah. that was actually a nutrition thing. Um, mm-hmm. more okay. than like a volume and intensity thing. Yeah. So uh, so it's very individual, but I would yeah. say less is more and you really want to make sure that um, there, is, there, is, there is a certain amount of volume that will make you adapt, mm-hmm. but also you can recover from. And you can build on that year to year uh, up to a point, and that is the point at which yeah. I think most of the super top professionals are at, which is like yeah. they just they could get faster, but they can't recover enough from what they're right. doing.
1: And I think they have to trade the intensity for that volume at oh, certain times no in the cycle. You know, So if you're gonna do that volume... It's going to all have to be endurance. Like I know Tade Pogacar does a lot of um, endurance training in zone two, but it's endurance. He yeah. doesn't go 30 hours in a workout every day, you yeah. know? It's a smattering of intervals.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, so somebody asks, is it really overtraining or is it more under recovery? Like we just kind of touched on that, but it's, I, it's, it's a mm-hmm. little of both. It's a isn't little of
1: both. Yeah. Cause you can push the training too much, but then you can also not allow yourself to have that recovery and that rest that you need.
0: Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Oh, here's, here's another good one. We kind of touched on this, but this is a, a interesting take. A couple people ask a very similar, um, mm-hmm. uh, version of the same question. So what are signs that you're going from functional overreaching to non-functional overreaching or overtraining. Um like where can you get yourself to where you think this is enough, I need some rest.
1: Well, it's really funny because I always feel like my mom has said when you're flying and you're in your best form, you're actually on the edge of injury sometimes. Like you're you're absolutely flying, so I'd say when you are like really <laughs> flying in the best form, that's when you actually have to watch out a bit for like Going over the edge.
0: I would say so, especially for running and, yeah. and impact sports. But yeah. I think in cycling, um, th- this is one of the things that in my training methodology I've really tried to control for.
1: Yeah.
0: And this is going to sound really familiar to you, Katie, but um, but it's like if um, like for threshold work or something like that, you really want to progress the time and zone. Mm-hmm. And so if you stop progressing time and zone, like let's say you're getting up to, after a three-week block, you're getting up to about 50 minutes and your next workout is two by 25 and the last one was, I don't know, like four by 12 or something like that. Uh, Or maybe you did two by, uh, you know, four by whatever. Like you've been progressing. Maybe your last one was like two by 20. You want to add 10 minutes. or two by 22 and a half. Now you're adding five. Um, If you get to your next workout and you fail it, Mm-hmm. If you get through your first twenty-five minute effort, yeah. and then you take a ten-minute rest, and then you make it like fifteen minutes into your second effort, and you blow up completely, mm-hmm. uh, that is a sign that yeah, you need some rest now, and that yeah. is, Or on the other hand, um, maybe you were up all night drinking last night. Yeah. And
1: <laughs> then that's your, yeah,
0: yeah. You fought with your spouse. Your kids kept you up. Like you're, right. um, you know, you get there, there's some other stressor, work stress, like you know, these are other then factors that's and then, you know, then maybe it's like, okay, we'll take a couple of days and maybe we'll take a crack at it. Or maybe we're just going to start rest week early.
1: Right. Oh, well, one other thing you told me is like, I've been having really good workouts, but today I was hoping to have better legs. So, you know, if you, if you're expecting to have good legs and you, or your coach is really expecting that and you just feel really like flat and some fatigue, you may need to pull back on it a little bit. It doesn't mean you're necessarily overtrained, but you could be going in that direction.
0: Yeah. And so I think you know figuring out which lever to pull on is a very it depends kind of thing like mm-hmm. if you're in week three it's most likely start the rest yeah. week early but if you're in week like one late week one or like week yeah, two of a three-week block a it's concern. a different story yeah, yeah. um uh all right. So last one is, does it feel different to overtrain due to intensity versus due to volume? And you haven't really overtrained from volume before, but I would imagine yeah. that's more of a nutrition thing, you know, as opposed to I a, would think uh, so. I mean, I've thing.
1: done the intensity and to me, it, you just feel completely empty and exhausted and also injured in my case. Um, the volume, you know, I was hitting up against that, but I, I almost think it's because I went out a little too hard. Mm -hmm. Um, on the first and second day. And so that made the rest of it a bit harder. So I think some of it, I mean, if you're truly keeping the volume at endurance, like I think you would just suddenly feel the elastic snap a bit.
0: Um, you know, you, you think that except that when I've trained people for ultra, that's not what seems to happen. It it seems like, it seems like they could just kind of keep motoring forever as long as they get enough food. Yeah. And at some point-
1: Well, the- what, that's what I mean. The elastic stops when you don't have pro- enough food probably. Yeah. You can't turn it around quick enough. Right.
0: Well, you've coached some ultra people too. And, yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously the nutrition is such a, like, you know, yeah. such a pivotal thing in events that long, you know, over a couple of days yeah. or even that weeks. That can lead
1: to a complete collapse if you- yeah. you know, don't fuel it well at some yeah. point. But like,
0: let's say you are fueling well. Yeah. Uh, you know, the volume over training thing, um, you know, I would say, you know, I would guess it would look like you can't really do anything Harder yeah. than what your yeah. body will let you do, and you know anything because, at higher intensity. Yeah, this bear that's been chasing you for like three weeks now is just well, still chasing. sometimes for so my athletes from
1: who come off of ultras, it's like they can't get their legs back. Like any interval set we're trying to do, it's just a disaster. They yeah. just need to keep resting and resting, and they keep feeling that fatigue.
0: Yeah, well,
1: over and over. I, I remember every the day. first
0: time I coached somebody through Leadville. Uh, he he needed like I just gave him like. You know, a couple of days off, and yeah, I was like, yeah. "Easy spin."
1: You think they're 50, gonna be okay? <laughs> well, well, I was
0: like, 15, twenty minutes." I, I did. I no, knew I didn't yeah. know when he was gonna be okay. Yeah. And so I just said, "You tell me when you feel fine." <laughs> and and so at some point, can be shockingly fine. long. Yeah, I think it was like just about two weeks for him. Yeah. Before we even started doing more deliberate easy stuff, um, yeah, and then gradually building into it, uh into harder stuff for I think cross, but yeah, yeah, it, it, it I've took a seen while. it
1: where it's. It kind of
0: it, it could be a month
1: disrupts the whole summer yeah. if someone doesn't properly rest, and then you can tell because they're just you know always feeling a little bit of this effect from the mm-hmm. volume of the ultra, and you really have to pull back on it like really hard on them, and they may just want to keep going, but you're like,
0: yeah, no. <laughs> and sometimes people will say they feel fine. And then things will go badly. Yes,
1: yes. They <laughs> they they don't quite know that they're actually fatigued, and I yeah. think this was happening with me too in 2019. Um, but you can see all the signs in their training and their data and stuff. Off, and you often have there to... are
0: some signs that things yeah. are going very badly. Yes. Um. And, you know, and even with people who are you know stubbornly saying that they're fine. Yes. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I remember uh, I remember coaching someone through a um, through a Cross America race. And um, I think uh, afterwards, I was just like, you know, you're done for the summer. You just come back and tell me when you want to start training again. And it was months. Yeah, and that's you know, natural. Yeah, I think she said it took probably two or three months till yep. like the walking again was normal. But like yeah, that was also her first, intense. her first um, uh, event of that duration. And yeah. she had done some similar, you know, kind of, but you can't really prepare for something like that.
1: Yeah, I do get a little worried when people are saying any like walking or impact is really hard and they feel okay on the bike. I still get a bit worried if it's a long ultra they're coming off of. Yeah. I still want them to feel okay walking around.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so um Yeah, so that's that's a bunch of non-answers and it depends. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think we did a pretty good job with that. Um so yeah, Coach Katie, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me. All
0: right. So thank you again, Katie, for coming on to the podcast. That was a really excellent discussion. I hope everybody listening uh, learned a lot. And um, I hope in some way that you cannot relate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but if you can, uh, well, obviously uh, take a nap, get some extra sleep, take a day off the bike and have some ice cream. So uh, of course, if you want to reach out to EmpiricalCycling at gmail.com, Katie's roster is usually pretty full because she's really good at what she does uh, as a coach. And so um, it's always worth reaching out if you want to work work with her or if you want to work with any of our other excellent coaches, including myself, uh, I may have an extra roster spot open at the moment, and that is on the 10th of May, 2022. So uh, feel free to reach out and... um, you know, donations up at empiricalcycling.com slash donates. Thank you, everybody, for all of those. And, uh, you know, if you want to ask any questions up in the Instagram, at empiricalcycling uh, up in the weekends. Also, we do some AMAs, and uh, I'll be putting up stories whenever we're recording a podcast. So just keep an eye on those. You don't have to respond, or you don't have to ask a question if you don't want to. But, um, I, uh, yeah, if you do want to ask a question ever, that's the place to do it. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye.